Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning to again come into worship and to be in your presence, to be with your people, to hear your word and to understand it all the more, to apply it to our lives and to to seek to, to see what does it say to us as your followers. May we as followers of Jesus truly hear the words of Jesus, understand the teachings of Jesus, see what's going on in the life of Jesus. And may it lift us up into your presence and bless us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I remember one time when my children were fairly young, and uh, Tyler got it in his head that he was going to sit on my foot and grab my leg. And he thought, if I do that, then I'm going to keep my dad from being able to move. You know, kids do that all the time with their parents, right? So he sat on my leg, and he was holding on, and so I thought, well, I'll just start walking with him. So here I am. I'm walking along with Tyler. Well, then Tiffany sees what's going on. He said, oh, that looks like fun. So Tiffany got on my other foot, grabbed my other leg. So here I am, clomping through the living room, one child on one foot and one child on the other foot. And they thought that was so great, because after a while, I got pretty tired, and I had to stop walking, And they thought it was so fun being able to constrain my movements and keep me from being able to move very well. And I tell that story because as we come to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see Jesus being constrained in his ministry, being constrained in his work, but not for fun. It's going to come from the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they want to try to keep Jesus from doing the work that he was called to do. You know, there's all kinds of testing in life, isn't there? There's a test we face in school, right? You, you hear all this information, and then they test you on it to see, are you remembering, are you learning the, what, is, what you're being taught? And there's a testing of our willpower. Maybe you come upon all these desserts are in front of you, right? And do you have the willpower to, to not eat all of them, right, that are sitting there in front of you? There's a test of our endurance, right? When we're faced with a difficult challenge, there's a testing of our will when our our children or our grandchildren can be difficult, right? But these tests are normal occurrences in life. And and these kinds of tests actually help us in many ways. Yet there's another kind of test. And that is when we're tested by someone who wants to make our life difficult. Now, it doesn't happen very often, right? But I've had that happen a couple times in my life. And I remember, in particular, it was my first ministry, my first church. I was in Colorado, and we were having our first leaders' retreat. I, I called the elders together. They hadn't had leader retreat before, and I thought, you know, it's important for us to gather together as a leadership body. And so we're only going to do a half day, just a Saturday morning, 9 to noon. And so we gathered together, and the focus of the morning was going to be on being spiritual leaders, how elders are first and foremost spiritual leaders before they are to do the business of the church. And so we were there, and I was doing an opening devotion, and I was trying to kind of set the stage for the morning when one of my elders named Arlen walked in. He was late. He sat down. I could tell something was bothering him. And so I continued on my devotion, and then he interrupted me in the middle of my devotion. He said, what is our agenda for today? Kind of roughly saying it to me. And I told him, well, we're going to talk about you know, how important it is to be spiritual leaders of the church and how, first and foremost, that's what elders are called to do. 
And then he looked at me and said, you mean we're not going to do any business today? And I said, no, we're going to save the business for our general session meetings each month. And with that, he just got up and walked out of the room. Well, from that point on, he started to make my life difficult. He started to make my ministry more difficult. He even went as far as getting a petition and trying to get people in the church to sign it to have me recalled as pastor. It was a very difficult time for me dealing with what was going on with Arlen and him trying to constrain my opportunity for ministry. See, Jesus had a whole group of people with this attitude towards him. As I said before, they were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the the religious leaders of the day. And they were trying to test Jesus in many ways. They tested him with questions, trying to trip him up. They they challenged him with accusations. They, They set him up with matters of the law. And then at Matthew 16, verse 1, can we move it forward? This, again, is not working for some reason. Let's try that. There we go. Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we know this isn't the first time that this happened, but again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they try to test him. Give us a sign from heaven so that we can know that you are really Jesus, that you are really the Messiah. See, because they didn't really believe that. And they were not happy that the people around were believing that. And so they were thinking, maybe if we test Jesus in this way, he won't be able to do it, and then he'll prove to the people that he's not really the Messiah, and the people will stop following him. But Jesus replies, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. The religious leaders wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted something profound and obvious that would say to them, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am God in the flesh. But more than anything, they were just really trying to be a thorn in Jesus' side. They were trying to make things more difficult for Jesus. They were trying to make it so that the people would look at Jesus to be a fraud and stop following him. But they already had had a great amount of signs. Every miracle, every sign that Jesus did was a sign for them that he was indeed the Messiah because only the Son of God, God in the flesh, could do the things that he had done time and time Again, he had done them. He had given them evidence, but they had not seen it. See, the evidence that had begun up to this point was sufficient to satisfy an unprejudiced understanding. But those with closed hearts were not willing or able to see it. The deceitfulness of their heart would keep them from seeing the signs that pointed clearly to the people that Jesus was the Messiah the one who had come to save the people from their sins, the one for whom the Jews had been waiting. Jesus said to them, no other sign will be given to you except that like Jonah. Remember, Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days, and then he was released from that, and he went to help Nineveh be redeemed for the Lord. 
So Jesus, we know, will go into the tomb for three days. And when he comes out, he will redeem all who believe in him as Savior and Lord. So we can learn from Jesus here that those who are sincere in their seeking Christ, we should give them time. We should help them to learn more about Jesus. But those who are not sincere in seeking out Christ, we should not waste our time with them. We should pray for them that their hearts would be changed, that they would come to us seeking information, seeking knowledge, seeking faith. But Jesus spent his time with those who he knew were open to his words who are sincere in seeking him. We don't need to demand a sign to believe. Jesus gives us signs all around us. If you open up your eyes, you will regularly see signs that Jesus is active and present in this world and in your life, and in my life, and in our church. Now, right after this occurrence with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus warns the disciples of them, and whenever you see yellow, please read the yellow with me. Matthew 16, 5-6. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. As so often happens, Jesus uses the situations around him as teaching opportunities. And here the, the disciples have forgotten to bring bread, and they, they regularly brought bread when they were going to places that didn't have provision for them. But in this case, they had forgotten to bring bread. When they were there, Jesus said to them this statement, right? Be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus knew that the disciples would be most in trouble from hypocrites, those who appear to be followers of Christ, but truly are not followers those who appear to be believers, but actually are leading people astray. And Jesus was referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their practices were like yeast, like leaven. They were souring and swelling and spreading. They fermented wherever they went. They could easily spread to the believers around them and make it difficult for people to believe. So Jesus was warning them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then verse 7, we read, They discussed this among themselves, the disciples, and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. I mean, listen to that again. The disciples are hearing Jesus, and they say, It is because we didn't bring any bread that Jesus is talking this way. And we want to laugh at the Pharisees, right? You want to laugh because it's like, Wait a minute, you totally missed what Jesus is trying to say to you. He's not talking about bread. He's not talking about yeast. He's, when Jesus talks, he doesn't talk about superficial things like that. He's talking about deep, meaningful things, right? Deep, meaningful things. And they completely missed it. But you know what? Oftentimes, we meet miss the deeper meanings that Jesus wants us to understand. Maybe we're reading the Bible. Maybe we're here, sitting here, listening to the sermon, and Jesus wants to speak a deep message to us. Deep, Jesus wants to give us a truth to lead us into the week, and we miss that deeper meaning that Jesus has for us. That happens all the time, and it happened here with the disciples. We live in confusion following our own will and not seeking out the will 
of God. We fail to heed the warnings of God and put ourselves in places all the time where we stumble and fall because we have not listened to the warnings and the words and the truth of Jesus. Now, Jesus knew he had a short time to prepare the disciples, three years for training and teaching them, and then he would be gone, and then they would be the ones in charge. They would be the ones taking over. And so maybe because of that, he knew the time was short, and maybe because um, they were failing to really grasp the deep truths, we see Jesus get a little frustrated with them. Verses 8 to 12. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, after his explanation, they then understood that Jesus was talking about the teaching of the religious leaders. They were not to be fooled with believing their teaching that was actually leading them astray from a deeper relationship from God that it would lead them away from understanding that Christ alone is the truth, that Christ alone is life. And so he was warning them against these Pharisees, these Sadducees, who were teaching something that was not helping them deepen their relationship with God. They seemed to be religious people, but they were not truly the kinds of people that you should follow. And we see that in our world all the time. There's people all around us that, that seem to be people we should follow, people we should listen to. But be careful of the teachings of those that do not drive you closer to a relationship with God, that do not lead you into the will of God, do not lead you to live a life that God has called you to live. Be careful of those kinds of teachings. You know, we get fooled all the time by political correctness, right? And that this is how you're supposed to believe. And if you believe anything other than that, then you're believing wrong. Or we get fooled into thinking, well, if someone's a good person, I mean, really good, they're sincere, they're trying hard in their life, they're trying to be good and kind, right? That that is a replacement for having Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. We get fooled. When we believe that a a new law or a new program can really help instead of the fervent praying of God's people and the fervent work of God's people to love one another and to lead people into the truth and the right way of living. Let us not be fooled by the teaching of our world that leads us away from God's word, away from God's truth, away from the life that we are called to live as Christians. Jesus' teaching is all we need for truth and understanding. When my mother died last year, uh, we were looking for a will, and we found a will, but the will we found was not a signed will. So that was a problem. What's even more of a problem was that my stepfather has dementia, and the dementia is getting worse. And because of that, he's paranoid, and so he won't allow my sister and her husband to come in the house 
to look for the will. We don't believe that my mom would put together a will and not have a signed will. So we believe that somewhere in the house, there is a signed will. But they can't get into the house, and they don't want to try to force their way into the house. So we're just having to wait right now. But because of that, my brother mailed me and his daughter his trust, <laughs> so that he, sh- he would be sure that he was covered. And Tammy began to talk with her parents about their trust and making sure it was in order. And we've talked to our children about our trust and all that. Now, we, we haven't done this because we think we're going to die, <laughs> But we've done this because we want to make sure that we are prepared if for some reason we do die. I mean, what happened last Sunday, right? I mean, what's been talked about all week long, right? Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other people perished in a helicopter, right? And all week long, all you've heard about is Kobe Bryant, right? Even if you're not a basketball fan, I would imagine you've heard about Kobe Bryant. Time and time again. 41 years old, and I, now I did hear that he had gone to church and had communion, and so that's really good that he did that before he passed away. But we never know how many days we have on this earth, do we? We do not know how long we will live. And so it's good to be prepared. And Jesus, though, did know how long he was going to be on earth. And so we see that Jesus is preparing the disciples for his death. He starts talking about it more and more as his time is getting near to the end. He knows that he's going to put the disciples in charge. They're going to take over the ministry. He wants them to be aware of what's going to happen. He wants them to be prepared for it when it does happen. And so we read in verse 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. He does this so that as these events start to happen, the disciples will be ready for it. He does this so that they will understand why these things are taking place. He does it so that they will have an understanding that is all part of God's will, that he will be taken He will suffer, he will be killed, and on the third day he will rise from the dead. Now Peter has difficulty in dealing with this. I mean, he doesn't want to see Jesus die, right? Jesus is his his teacher, his Lord. He doesn't want to hear about it. But Jesus makes clear to Peter that when Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about this, that Peter is just thinking about human concerns human emotions, and not the concerns of God. Peter doesn't understand that these things must take place for the will of God to happen, for God's will to come to pass. We need to trust God and live according to the way God leads us to live and not question God by saying, God, I don't understand this, so I don't want to believe it or I don't want to do it. No, when God tells us this is going to happen or this is the way it needs to be, we need to follow. We need to listen. We need to say, okay, God, I trust you. I believe that you know what's going on. And I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust and I'm going to live in the way you call me to live. Making the most of every day we have. Making the most of every opportunity. And Jesus teaches us about this in verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What, God, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person for what they have done. He will reward us in the future. He will reward us based on what we do, how we live for him. Now, there's so much in this passage that a whole sermon could be written just on this passage alone, but I want to give you two, two highlights from this passage. First, it's not what we want that is important, but what God wants that is important. We must release our selfish wants and desires so that we can give ourselves over to what God wants us to do. Every day we are faced with a choice. Do I want to do what I want to do or do I want to know what God wants me to do? And sometimes that are in line with each other and sometimes they are different. And we need to seek God first thing every day. God, what do you have for me to do? Give me eyes to see. If an opportunity comes, Help me to know this is from you. If a situation arises, help me to, to be ready to, to deal with it. Help me to know what you are calling me to do in this day. And to do what God wants you to do, sometimes you might have to make more difficult choices. Instead of taking a cruise on your vacation, you may say, you know what, I'm going to go on a mission trip instead. I'm going to use my vacation time to go on a mission trip. Or maybe... Instead of spending a night in front of the TV one night, even though you're feeling a little tired after a day of work, maybe you need to come to a Tuesday night prayer meeting and be in prayer with God's people. Or maybe you need to open up your house to someone in need. See, there's thousands of opportunities that God puts in front of us. Are we ready to receive them? Are we ready to act upon them? Are we ready to do what God wants us to do, what God thinks is important? And secondly, this passage is teaching us that we have to understand that the rewards we might get from our selfish choices will in no way compare to the rewards God will give us in heaven. When Tammy and I were first married, we decided that even from the beginning, we're going to start saving for the kids' college and we're going to start saving for our retirement. So we started putting away money for college a year before Tyler was even born. We started saving. Now, that seems like a long way out, doesn't it? I mean, you're married, you don't even have any children, and you start putting money aside for college. Kind of seems silly, you know? What if I never have any children and I'm putting this money aside for college? But we started saving for college, and it, it did seem a long ways out. It was like 30 years ago, right? Long time ago. But you know what? Tyler graduated from college last June. And Tiffany graduated from college this December. It's come upon us. It has happened. What seemed like so far off is upon us now. And both of the kids will graduate from college with no debt. Amen to that. That is wonderful. And then we also had to make some other choices, right? In terms of our retirement, we had to you know, buy less expensive cars. We had to buy a less expensive house. We had to make those kinds of choices. We had to go out. We maybe went out to dinner maybe once a month. We made Intentional choices, knowing that we were saving for the future. And even though my retirement is still probably at least 10 years away, as they say, it will come quicker than you think, right? (laughs) 
See, God wants us to do work now that will benefit us in the future. But we live in an instant gratification world, don't we? We want to do something now and see the results now. We want to do something now and get the rewards now. But God says, the rewards you get from your earthly endeavors in no way will compare to the rewards that I give you in heaven for the work you're doing for my kingdom now. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we will do great works for the kingdom of God. We'll do great works for the kingdom of God. See, we have to make that a priority in our life. Do I want to do great works for the kingdom of God? You wake up in the day and say, what great work can I do today for the kingdom of God? Who can I tell about Jesus? Who can I help that maybe is struggling? Who can I love that maybe is feeling unloved? Who can I come alongside that needs a friend? Who can I give some advice to that seems to be struggling in their decisions? In what way can I do a work for the kingdom of God? Not worrying about the reward now, but knowing that God will reward me in heaven. There's a story of a boy who was on a boat, and his father was on the dock next to him, but the boat began to drift away a little farther than the the father was comfortable with, and so the father started throwing rocks. And the boy was kind of like ducking as the rocks were going over his head, and he's kind of wondering himself, why is my dad throwing rocks at me? But then he realized after a moment that the rocks weren't coming near him, the rocks were going over him and landing on the far side of the boat. And then he noticed that as the rocks were hitting the water, it was causing this ripple effect, and the water, as it was rippling, actually began to move the boat back towards the dock. See, Jesus faced outside pressures, didn't he? He faced outside pressures from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, outside pressures that made his ministry and his life a little more difficult. How did Jesus overcome that? He overcame that by knowing that he had the truth, that he was the truth, that he had a will from the Father that he was to carry out, and he was steadfast in fulfilling that will and doing everything he could do to live according to the will of God. See, the outside pressures in your life and in my life, they can do one of two things. They can cause you to get frustrated and and get you to to turn away from God and and lose focus on God and and start focusing on the problems and the issues or maybe thinking that God's not there helping you with them and maybe even getting a little angry at God. I see that happen all the time. And so those outside pressures can, can push you actually away from God. Or those outside pressures can be like the ripples that push us toward God toward trusting in God, toward seeking God's truth, toward seeking God's will for our life, saying, I'm going to live for God, and I know that when I do that, my life will be meaningful, and I will make a difference in this world, and I will make a difference in somebody else's life. May the outside pressures you face every day lead you to the truth of God, the call of God in your life, and your faithfulness for living for God each and every day. Let us pray.